71 Cherry Street is an unpretentious wood frame building in the Cambridge neighborhood known as Area 4, a half block from Columbia Park and a short walk from Toscanini's Ice Cream, Stefani House of Pizza, and Newtown Variety. Since 1902, 71 Cherry Street has accommodated the Margaret Fuller Neighborhood House, one of our congregation's community partners which provides vital services to over 1,500 children, youth, families, and individuals each year. Exactly 200 years ago today, a baby was born in that house. Her parents named her Sarah Margaret Fuller, and the woman she grew up to be changed who we are today. As a religious movement and as a people, we are more just, more egalitarian, more compassionate, because Margaret Fuller lived. To honor this Unitarian pioneer and prophet, we have renamed the room downstairs, formerly called Mezzanine One. It's the only place I know where the mezzanine is downstairs. That's... We are so special here. We've renamed the room the Margaret Fuller Room, outside which will hang her portrait and brief biography to remind us all of our, our debt to her. Margaret's father was a prominent attorney and later United States Senator. Her mother, a demure beauty, well-trained in domestic skills. Neither one ever knew quite what to make of their precocious daughter. By age five, she was reading adult books, by age six, reciting Virgil to her father after his evening tea. Striving to satisfy his perfectionism, she began to experience nightmares, sleepwalking, and piercing headaches, the last of which plagued her all her life. When her parents left for Washington, she was sent at age 11 to Dr. Park's School for Girls in Boston, where she outshone her classmates in academics but lagged in social graces. Her friend, the Unitarian minister, William Henry Channing, recalled her predicament. She was considered a prodigy of talent and accomplishment, but a sad feeling prevailed that she had been overtaxed by her father, who wished to train her like a boy, and that she was paying the penalty for undue application in nearsightedness, awkward manners, extravagant tendencies of thought, and a pedantic style of talk that made her a butt for the ridicule of frivolous companions. Margaret herself wrote starkly in her journal, I made up my mind to be bright and ugly. At age 16, she completed her formal studies. Her male contemporaries were graduating from Harvard, bound for law, medicine, politics, the ministry, or university teaching. In 1826, all these vocations were closed to women. But Fuller had an extraordinary talent, friendship. In groups, she tended to declaim with learned ostentation, but in individual conversation, she was capable of drawing out the most reserved soul. She could not make a journey or go to an evening party, Ralph Waldo Emerson recalled, without meeting a new person who wished presently to impart his history to her. It was Fuller's skill at conversation, far more than writing, that made her famous. Another Unitarian friend, the Reverend Frederick Henry Hedge, observed, 
Her speech, though finished and true as the most deliberate rhetoric of the pen, had always an air of spontaneity, which made it seem the grace of the moment, the result of some organic provision which made finished sentences as natural to her as blundering and hesitation are to most of us. Emerson called her conversation the most entertaining in America. But even her friend Channing conceded that her intense self-certainty and acerbic satire could overwhelm. She paid slight heed to the trim palings of etiquette, but swept through the garden beds and into the doorway of one's confidence so cavalierly that a reserved person felt inclined to lock himself up in his sanctum. For a woman, the price of intellectual distinction was sexual disqualification. I love best to be a woman, Fuller confessed, though womanhood is at present too straightly bounded to give me scope. Even could she have found the man who could tolerate her brilliance, the life of letters she craved could not coexist with conjugal domesticity. A married man could retreat to his library for hours on end, at once protected and left alone by his wife. A married woman, obligated to chores and social calls, had no such luxury, even before children occupied her sphere. Fuller's relations with American men remained chaste, even when both parties imagined more. A journal entry gives voice to her anguish. With the intellect, she wrote, I always have, always shall overcome. But the life, the life, my God, shall the life never be sweet. Fuller found solace in a religious faith that embraced both the Christian Unitarianism of William Ellery Channing and the transcendentalism of Ralph Waldo Emerson. At the age of 21, she was transformed by a mystical experience. Provoked by the facile optimism of a Unitarian Thanksgiving Day sermon, doubtless not too different from one of mine, <laughs> she remembered I felt within myself great power and generosity and tenderness, but it seemed to me as if they were all unrecognized and as if it was impossible that they should be used in life. I was only one and twenty. The past was worthless, the future hopeless. After the service, Fuller fled into the dark woods, where the sun suddenly shone with transparent sweetness, and she felt transported. I saw there was no self, that selfishness was all folly and the result of circumstance, that it was only because I thought self real that I suffered, that I had only to live in the idea of all, and all was mine. I was, for that hour, taken up into God. Although she could not preserve that sense of oneness with all things, its memory sustained her the rest of her life. The following year, her father abruptly moved the family to the then remote town of Groton. For 22-year-old Margaret, bred to the heady talk and well-stocked libraries of Cambridge, Groton was a dismal exile. A conversationalist bereft of stimulating conversation, she chafed under the dutiful daughter's domestic duties and feared lest they become her permanent lot. 
When, when three years later her father died, Fuller took over management of the household and care of her younger siblings, and her nightmare seemed real. Rescue came in a burgeoning friendship with her Concord neighbor, Waldo Emerson. Emerson both admired and challenged her intellect while she lowered the drawbridge of his famous self-reliance, calling him to deepen his affections. Margaret made Waldo laugh rather more than he liked. They kept each other on their toes. You cannot predict her opinion, Emerson marveled. She sympathizes so fast with all forms of life that she talks never narrowly or hostily, nor betrays, like all the rest, under a thin garb of new words, the old droning cast-iron opinions or notions of many years' standing. When Emerson, Hedge, Alcott, Parker, and others formed a discussion group they called the Transcendental Club, Fuller was there in the inner circle and the first editor of its literary journal, The Dial. Fortified by this company, Fuller hit upon a way to support herself. In an age when the lecture circuit was both popular entertainment and a lucrative vocation for men, Fuller realized that women would pay to join in educational conversations in private homes. More than mere income, these conversations offered a means of elevating women's self-image. By engaging their minds, Fuller would show them their minds were worth engaging, and the equal of men's, though denied men's education and flattery. Fuller's conversations proved a raging success. For four years, they were faithfully attended by ladies who braved ridicule or worse from their husbands. One subscriber described the experience, as I sat there, my heart overflowed with joy at the sight of the bright circle, for I know not where to look for so much character, culture, and so much love of truth and beauty in any other circle of women and girls. The question, the high point from which it was considered, and the earnestness and simplicity of the discussion, as well as the gifts and graces of the speakers, gave it the charm of a platonic dialogue. There was no pretension or pedantry in a word that was said. The conversations faltered only once when Fuller made the mistake of inviting men, who dominated the discussion while the women lapsed into deferential silence. When Fuller reverted to a women-only format, the magic returned. Inspired by the conversations, Fuller in 1843 published an article demanding complete equality for women educational, vocational, legal, and political. Defending the right of women to remain unmarried, she condemned the fault of marriage and of the present relation between the sexes, that the woman belongs to the man instead of forming a whole with him. Two years later, Fuller expanded her article into a book, Woman in the 19th Century. She called upon every woman to form her self-image based upon her own values and to lay aside all thought, such as she habitually cherishes, of being taught and led by men. Only women who respect themselves, she argued, are capable of mature relationships. Union is possible only to those who are units, to be fit for relations in time. Souls, whether of man or woman, must be able to do without them in the spirit. To Fuller, gender meant difference not dichotomy. Male and female, she wrote, 
are perpetually passing in to one another. Fluid hardens to solid, solid rushes to fluid. There is no wholly masculine man, no purely feminine woman. In families that I know, some little girls like to saw wood, others to use carpenter's tools. When these tastes are indulged, cheerfulness and good humor are promoted. When they are forbidden because such things are not proper for girls, they grow sullen and mischievous. To women's vocation, Fuller saw no limit. Let them be sea captains, she declared. Applying her unstinting intellect to other inequalities, Fuller began to speak out for the rights of prisoners, Native Americans, enslaved Africans, and those mired in poverty. In 1846, Fuller sailed to Europe, not as a sea captain, but as the first female foreign correspondent in American history. In Italy, she felt strangely at home in a way she never had in New England. While visiting St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, she became separated from her companions and realized she was lost in the deepening shadow. Suddenly, a gentleman appeared and offered his assistance. He was Giovanni Angelo Ossoli, at 26, 11 years younger than Margaret. Within weeks, they were lovers. Within months, she gave birth to a son. Motherhood suited Margaret more than anyone might have predicted, including her. She doted on her child. But when the Italian movement for democracy boiled into revolution, Fuller volunteered to direct a military hospital. The human devastation she witnessed there and the swift collapse of the democratic forces impressed Fuller with human limitation, including her own. Fuller's marriage drew attention on both sides of the Atlantic, much of it caustic. What a strange story, is it not? taunted one male observer. Now that scornful, man-hating Margaret of 40 has got a husband, really no old maid need despair while there is life in her body. Others were scandalized by the likelihood that she was pregnant on her wedding day. But the passages of war and motherhood had led Fuller to a deeper peace. She counseled her friends not to feel anxious about people's talk concerning me. It is not directed against the real Margaret, but a phantom. People, when they see me, will not generally be inclined to injure me, for they will see the expression of a heart bettered by experience, more humble and tender, more anxious to serve its kind than ever before. Preparing to return to America, Fuller was troubled by frequent reports of shipwreck. She prayed that it may not be my lot to lose my babe in the sea, either by unsolaced sickness or amid the howling waves, or that if I should, it may be brief anguish, and also he and I go together. Her last prayer was granted. On July 19, 1850, the ship Elizabeth foundered off Fire Island. As the vessel broke apart, Margaret Fuller and her husband and child drowned in the roiling sea. Just three months later, the first National Women's Rights Convention, organized by Lucy Stone and Paulina Kellogg Wright Davis in Worcester, drew over a thousand participants with more turned away at the doors. Margaret Fuller 
was to have been a featured speaker. And many had high hopes she would take up the mantle of leadership of the new movement. Had she done so, she might have challenged and guided the American conscience for the next half century. Even with her life cut short at the age of 40, Elizabeth Cady Stanton called Fuller the most influential woman in history. We will never know how much we lost to the stormy Atlantic that day. By refusing to veil her brilliance in domesticity, Margaret Fuller did not merely assert women's equality, she proved it to a doubting world. You can still read the inscription on Fuller's memorial in Mount Auburn Cemetery. By birth, a child of New England, by adoption, a citizen of Rome, by genius, belonging to the world. Amen, and blessed be.